Welcome to the Ready to Run podcast. I'm your co-host, Efren Kabalius, and I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm your co-host, Kurt Roser, and I'm a physical therapist. We're based out of the Boulder, Colorado area and have a passion for working with endurance athletes of all abilities. The goal of our podcast is to engage in thoughtful discussions with athletes, coaches, and clinicians to share knowledge within the field of sports medicine and inspire progression in the sport of running. We hope to empower individuals to navigate injuries, reduce injury risk, optimize training and performance, and provide listeners with the tools needed to get ready to run. You'll be able to listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Subscribe and leave a rating and review to let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear on the show. You can also follow us on Instagram at Ready to Run Podcast, as well as our website, readytorunpodcast.com. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of the Ready to Run Podcast. And today we're going to talk about um, some very difficult uh, cases we've had recently and that we see commonly, and that is these patients with uh, lateral ankle pain, so pain on the outside of the ankle. And we want, wanted to go over some of the things to look for in these cases and um, how to assess these patients, what to look for in your physical exam, when to order the appropriate imaging, and and come up with a rehabilitation strategy, uh, since some of these can be quite tricky and um, particularly if we're talking about ankle sprains, ankle instability, perineal tendon injuries, a lot of times the symptoms you see may just actually be like the tip of the iceberg. And there may be a lot to dissect and look at to, to get these patients healthy and back to running. Yeah. And that's definitely been my experience in the past couple of months. months. I've had a few kind of tricky, uh, tricky runners with some uh, perineal tendinopathy that just it's you know, taking longer than expected to uh, get them back to to full speed, um, whether they're trail or road or track type runners, um, uh, mostly male now that I'm thinking about it. Um, But uh, yeah, one of the interesting things that um, I've learned in, you know, the past couple months is the the role of imaging and um, how we can kind of uh, uh, decide, you know, help decide prognosis and in, in terms of um if there's some underlying uh kind of ligamentous instability as maybe the root cause um because a lot of these these folks have a history of uh, maybe just minor but several um ankle sprains is kind of the a common theme and so uh yeah that's big learning learning thing for me in the past couple months um so yeah maybe could um you start us off with just uh kind of explaining like what ankle instability means for the context of when we're going to be talking about it on the next couple of minutes? Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think the big issue is that not all ankle sprains are self-limiting. Um, in fact, ankle sprains, they, they tend to carry the highest risk of recurrence of like, of all muscular, musculoskeletal injuries. Um, and they, they tend to have a twofold increase in re-injury risk. So if you injured your ankle before, um, you are highly likely to re-injure it again. Um, and this was described in a paper in 2016. There's a consensus statement on lateral ankle sprains where it basically showed like 
for the most part, you know, 50 to 70% of patients, they totally, they fully recover from their initial sprain. So that's about 30 to 50 though, that develops something called chronic ankle instability. And so this is characterized by like this persisting pain, sensation of giving way, recurring injury, um, pain in multiple parts of the ankle. So uh, the reason we want to pay attention to these is because if you let these go unchecked from the get-go, uh, a lot of times they can run into chronic problems, um, things like uh, post-traumatic osteoarthritis, perineal tendinopathy, and uh, osteochondral lesions, which are essentially like a pothole in the cartilage of the knee. So those are just some of the some of the things that like I think about with chronic ankle instability. Yeah, there's uh, certainly complications that can arise, and I think uh, for I think mostly for good. Um, when someone does sprain their ankle, they kind of like just start doing the things that they want to do as quickly as they can. Um, but oftentimes that means uh, they don't fully like rehab um, from maybe a stability or balance or strength perspective. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what I've what I've learned in in these past uh, couple months with a few of these folks that I'm thinking of that um, there's just. Uh, uh, even though they they were running to a pretty high level, um, there was a lot of like groundwork to um, kind of revamp in terms of their uh, their foot and ankle function. So uh, I think um, most people are going to get to a good place, but it just uh, can take longer than expected. Um, and the folks I'm kind of talking about are they were coming in chiefly for peroneal tendon pain, um, which you know tendinopathies we kind of tend to put into the same box a lot of times. But uh, the thing with uh, these types of patients is you can't just like kind of load the perineal tendon or do a lot of like heavy calf work. Um, you have to address some of the underlying um, kind of motor control deficits <clears throat> at the foot and ankle. Um, so you just, um, I guess that's the big, the big thing from a physical therapy perspective is you gotta, um, you can't just gloss over the the lack of control that these folks might have and try to load your way through it. Yeah. And I, I think we were actually talking about this uh, before we went on air here, but um, these patients that you're seeing with the perineal tendon injuries, um, I guess, can you first like describe like um, like the, the, the course, of the perineal tendons where they're presenting. And um, I'm curious to know whether or not they, they have had history of sprains or not at any point in time. No major sprains, but, um, each person is like, Oh yeah, I've had several, you know, over, over the years, or maybe like, you know, could be 20 years ago or longer. Um, but then pain is typically like just distal to the lateral malleolus. Um, and then sometimes it's, you know, it almost seems like that tendon is like wanting to sublux, um, up over the lateral malleolus, which I know that can be, a a finding, right, is like the tendon's not staying where it's supposed to. So it's getting maybe more compression up against the the pointy aspect of the lateral malleolus. And so I'd say that's mostly where people are going to point to is like just, just at the lateral malleolus or just distal. And then sometimes it'll go kind of all the way down the, the rest of the course of the peroneus brevis tendon to the base of the fifth met. Um, so that kind of like couple centimeter chunk is where most people are going to have the pain that's really stopping them from what I've been fa finding. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense too, because um, one of the other structures that you can see get injured, uh, if someone's had a history of a sprain is uh, a structure called the superior perineal retinaculum or the SPR. 
And this is basically like a like a connective tissue sheath, which runs just behind the malleolus, so like the tip of the outside of the bone on the fibula, um, and connects to the calcaneus or the heel bone. And it's this little connective tissue uh, which encases the perineal tendons. And um, it's almost like a, like a roof sitting on top of an internal structure. And so when somebody rolls their ankle, you can actually stretch that structure or tear it or even avulse it. Um, and what happens in that situation is then now all of a sudden there's more room for the perineal tendons. And then like Kurt was saying, um, they can sublux, meaning they're popping over one another, um, or they can dislocate where they're popping over the bone. And um, what's interesting is you can actually see this in about, uh, I can't remember the exact statistic, but I want to say like somewhere between 10 to 20% of people um, in the asymptomatic population who can just like make their tendons pop. Um, so I always ask them, well, did it pop before the injury and does it pop now? And uh, does it hurt when it pops? Cause um, uh, you know, you don't want to necessarily go down a rabbit hole um, on something that could be a, you know, a, an abnormal atypical finding, which is not presenting with any issue. Yeah. People ask about that a lot, the snapping tendon, uh, whether it's peroneals or sometimes like medial, like tip post or FHL or something. Um, this is kind of a random side thought, but you might know the answer. Um, I had one guy come in that his only complaint was he couldn't snowboard because his snowboard boots were pushing on basically like his peroneus brevis tendon. But, um, I forget the name of where there's like kind of a bony protuberance on the calcaneus, um, that can sometimes be a factor. Ah, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's an extra um, bone on the side of the ankle that some people have um, called an os perineum. Yeah. Which yeah, is basically, that's... yeah, it's, it's like an extra bony growth uh, and it happens to be present, um, uh, along the course of the perineal tendons, pretty close to like the insertion of mm-hmm. the, um, base of the fifth mat and like where the longest split. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they tend to be quite an annoyance from, from like, a pressure type of pain typically as yeah. well. Yeah. His yeah, his was huge. Um yeah. I was like, you know, and of course in a um more professional way, but we uh, I didn't say that to him. Um but uh we basically just kind of like uh dug out the area around that and his boot created like a little donut. Um yeah. and uh he was good because he didn't have any pain with anything else and he had just gotten new boots so he didn't want to like go to the boot people and get a new one. But um simple but effective yeah (laughs) but um yeah so if like uh if we're sending somebody to you like what um how can we evaluate the for the presence of some like actual ankle instability like you can look at that with ultrasound and you were explaining to me earlier how you can kind of like grade that and kind of decide put um put people in a, a category can you explain that a little bit yeah totally so um, so w- one of the things you want to, um, kind of define here is, uh, fu- functional versus structural instability. So I kind of basically think of functional as, as <clears throat> loss of proprioception, weakness, um, musculoskeletal factors, um, order control factors. Um, but these are structurally intact, uh, when you, when you assess them. So you may get an MRI that shows like a intact ATFL and then, um, under ultrasound, you can actually do um, something called an anterior drawer stress test uh, and and measure the change in ligament length. So the ATFL is basically, it's the most commonly injured ligament when somebody sprains their ankle. So if you roll your ankle on the outside, 
very common scenario. What it um, what it does is it stretches out this ligament, and it's, a lot of it is based on like the anatomic position. Um, it's just in a poor spot, but it also happens to be our primary stabilizer of the ankle. But um, its main job is is that it connects the the um, fibula to the top of the talus, which is the top of your ankle joint. And so when this gets stretched out, it's almost like a loose rubber band. Um, so now when when it gets stretched out or torn, you can get essentially excessive wobble in the ankle. And so what we do under ultrasound is we do something called an anterior drawer stress test to quantify um, just how how lax these are, or how how stable they are. So basically, an anterior drawer stress test, you know, you think of that um, as you have one hand on the the tibia, the other hand on the on the heel, and then you basically um, stabilize um, the tibia and then draw the um, dome of the talus forward, uh, which stretches out the the ATFL. And um, there's different, you know, positional things you can think about to optimize your test. Um, like basically adding a little bit of inversion to the test um, helps you get a more accurate um, sense of how this behaves anatomically. And also adding a little bit of slight plantar flexion, because when you put the ankle in plantar flexion, so um, like pushing down on a gas pedal, um, then the ATL ball will then run more horizontally in plane um, with the fibula and, and the talus. So it just puts it in a more top position. So you get an actual reliable assessment of the ligament. So anyways, you do this test, it's an anterior drawer stress test, and then um, you measure under ultrasound at, at neutral and maximal stretch. And so basically uh, Park in 2012 described a study under ultrasound where um, if it was a millimeter or less um, change in ligament length, um, that's considered normal. Anything above 2.5 was considered, um, I think they call it stage three or, you know, gross instability. So these are the patients who have just very, very poor proprioception, very, very poor control. And much of it is due to the structural integrity of the actual ligament itself. Um, and so that just helps us divide who are your obvious people who don't need surgery and who are your obvious people that would really benefit from surgery. Um, to stabilize the ligaments. And so that at least kind of helps you um, sort out some of the, the mess with all this. And then everyone else in between is someone who I would at least try to rehabilitate first. And we can talk about the strategy there, but um, try to rehabilitate the patients first, because you can actually make a big difference and, and um, you know, have them avoid the, the um, any potential surgical intervention in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's uh, helpful for, for clarifying and, um, yeah, I think a lot of PTs don't like, you know, we don't think about the grading or the, <clears throat> the actual like uh, the fact that we could use that anterior drawer test to um, kind of categorize people. So I think that's super helpful, um, especially when somebody's having some uh, persistent uh, pain, whether it's peroneal tendon or, or other elsewhere in the ankle uh, related to some sort of um, either functional or um, actual ankle instability. How do you do your anterior drawer stress test? Because I've one one of the things I've I've read is that like um the it's it's one of these tests that doesn't have great sensitivity. Um I, mm -hmm. I forget the exact number, it's somewhere between like 30 to 70%. And then the specificity is something like 60 to 90%. Um, if you're just talking about um a like palpation, yeah, you know, physical exam, anterior drawer stress test. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if you palpate it, I think if you palpate it with ATFL. It has a, it's very highly sensitive, like something like 95 or hundred percent. Um, 
Yeah, I think I have my uh typically have my thumb on the ETFL while I'm pulling forwards at the the talus so that I'm stabilizing with uh, my one hand proximally on the tibia and then uh, using my other hand to pull anteriorly um, the calcaneus and talus. But uh, yeah, I'll admit I don't see a, a lot of acute ankle sprains. So um, yeah, anterior drawer, talar tilt tests. Like um, a lot of times I wouldn't say that I'm looking for uh, like trying to assess laxity as much as I'm just looking using as a pain provocating test. So yeah, is that how, is that the setup that you were describing is top hand or using your hand behind the calcaneus to pull? Um, So, so the way I've done it is I'll have the patient like laying down on the table and with Mm -hmm. their ankle, just hanging off the edge of the bed. So that way I'm using the the table as a bit of a fulcrum. Mm -hmm. Um, And so my top hand, so I'm, I'm right-handed. So my top hand, my left hand is um, on top of the patient's like tibia and that's the stabilizing hand. And then my right hand is cupping the heel. And then I put them in a, like maybe a 10 degree plantar flexion, uh, which what that does is it relaxes the gastroxoleus complex. Um, so you're not fighting against that. And then okay. I'll put them in a slight Taylor tilt um, to, to um, you know, put that ligament in a more horizontal position. And then I'll, um, I'll, I'll keep my left hand stable and then just draw the right hand forward. So it's very subtle maneuver. Um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like when you, you know, when you're trying to do like a Lachman's on the knee, you know, when mm-hmm. you, when you overthink it, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it becomes a little more questionable, but like, um, when you kind of have the right setup and I, I really, like I said, I let the table do most of the work and then I just have to kind of just kind of slide their ankle forward. Yeah. So. Yeah. And have them, um, yeah, stable, like you said, and then also relaxed yeah. because if people are guarding, then you're not going to get a good sense for it as well. Yeah. That's also why I like never do these in like the first 72 hours. Like you mentioned, like acutely, like they're so swollen, they're in so much pain. Um, it becomes a very like unreliable test at that point. We wanted to take a quick break to share our experience with Joint Health Plus from Prevenex. Joint pain is one of the most common injuries seen in runners of all ages and becomes increasingly prevalent as we get older. Luckily, we know that running is not bad for your knees and joints and does not increase your risk of osteoarthritis. In fact, being physically active and exercising regularly is very important for joint health and overall health. I've tried a number of products over the years targeted at joint health and haven't liked any as much as I like this new blend from Prevenix called Joint Health Plus. I've taken it for about six months now and had my best marathon training block with less knee and ankle stiffness after long runs and bigger workouts. I also seem to come off the marathon really well in terms of recovery. It uses a proprietary blend of anti-inflammatories that are clinically proven to decrease pain in people who exercise. I think it is definitely worth giving a try for a couple months if you're dealing with any joint pain or stiffness in conjunction, of course, with strengthening, load management, and overall eating well and doing all of the other little things that we all should be doing. Check out Prevenix.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X and use code READY TO RUN for 15% off your first order. Prevenix offers a 100% satisfaction money back guarantee and their mission is to spread health to all of us. And then from a 
more functional standpoint, yeah, of course we're going to look at like balance. Um, and then, uh, I think some sort of like a single leg squat or like heel tap is what I'll do off the edge of like a, um, small step calf raises just to kind of like see like, you know, what they're, what they're doing to stabilize their foot and then how that all looks proximally, um, are the things that I'm really going to look at. Um, and then I still manual muscle test the ankle and just all the, the major ways. Um, I don't know how often it's helpful other than if it hurts, it's, you know, a good lens of irritability, I guess. Mm -hmm. But, um, I feel like a lot of times people are pretty limited functionally and then their manual muscle test is still like good in all directions of the ankle. Um, so, but I still do them. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Um, and can, can you talk about how you, how you assess like the, the joint mobility and maybe break down like the tail of curl joint versus the subtalar joint, what they both do, and then how you might assess those and what role they might play. Cause uh, one of the, one of the things I, I've seen described in like the, these ankle instability patients is, um, is this reduced sagittal plane range of motion. So sagittal plane meaning front to back and, uh, well, essentially not only loss of dorsiflexion, but even a little bit of loss of plantar flexion in some cases. And then also like, um, um, seeing some of that translate higher up on the chain of the knee and the hip. Um, I guess can you talk about how, how you might assess? Cause I, one of the things like, I feel like you're really good at um, assessing and treating mobility issues. Oh, uh, well try and thanks. Yeah. For <clears throat> ankle first, I would check like, uh, like actual ankle dorsiflexion range of motion. So I would, usually would do that in uh, closed chain. So in standing with the person trying to touch their knee to the wall, and then you could either use a inclinometer at their shin to um, for a number, or you could measure the distance from their toe to the wall. Um, I've been using the inclinometer on my phone just to kind of get the angle of, um, you know, uh, how far they can drive that tibia forwards without... Um, going into a ton of pronation through the foot. So I'll kind of like cue them to, or I'll put my hand on their talus basically to like say like, how far can you go forwards without, you know, collapsing your foot inwards. And then we'll get a good starting point. Um, and, and then plantar flexion, I would do more open chain, just, you know, standard goniometer, just kind of seeing it. And you're right. It is really interesting. That's something I've with manual therapy in the past year or two worked a lot of trying to improve people's plantar flexion range of motion, just kind of by working through soft tissue on the front of the ankle and, um, the, uh, the extensor musculature and the, the anterior shin, um, just cause people get really like stuck up there and I don't know how important it is, but people always feel better when they get more mo- motion in the front of the ankle. And then you actually tallow joint mobility. So we're kind of just using a, a, you know, grade system of, um, you know, how, how easy it is to get the, the talus to glide posteriorly or anteriorly relative to the, the tibia and fibula. So, um, for dorsiflexion, we're more interested in the talus being able to glide posteriorly. If you remember your arthrokinematics from, from class, everyone out there, um, so yeah, like specifically for dorsiflexion for runners, like really like most of the time we're going to try to get the talus to move posteriorly. So like checking that and seeing how well that moves and the midfoot is, uh, 
I think pretty tricky and um, I definitely under like treated it for a lot of years. Um, but the way that I kind of will check that is you can kind of like have your thumb and your uh, index finger on the, the talus and you can, you know, supposedly like orient the, the talus in a straight up and down position and then see what kind of position that puts the rest of the forefoot in. Um, so I've, you know, played with that, but the way that I've liked recently is like with the person is laying in supine and then their foot's flat on the table, knee bent position, you can kind of stabilize, um, the, uh, like first metatarsal and then drop the knee towards the outside and then the knee towards the inside, just to kind of see mm. what kind of motion is occurring between the talus and the, um, metatarsals essentially. Um, and you'll find that people are pretty stiff in those like navicular cuneiform, um, segments. And, um, so I'll, I'll do a little bit of work through there, but you know, it's also an area where I do worry about people getting too loose, uh, in the ability of those joints to essentially pronate going in that direction. Um, and that's maybe a bias cause I'm, um, yeah, just always, yeah, worried about tibialis posterior dysfunction long-term for, for people or something like that. Um, so that's what I do. I don't know if that's the most technical way to check for, uh, like the sub subtalar joint mobility. No, that's a really thorough explanation. And I'll, there's a couple of things I want to unpack with that stirred a bunch of thoughts in my head. So I have, I have one follow-up point and then two follow-up questions. So I guess one follow-up point that really rings a bell, what you're saying with the, 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 the telecurl joint. So actually there was a study, um, I think it was Kevin, Kevin Kirby, where he looked at some of the pathomechanical impairments of patients with chronic ankle instability. And one of the major findings he, he described is that there's actually an increased risk in rotational instability of the talus. So we think of the talus as like, you know, um, like you mentioned gliding forward and gliding back to, to improve motion, but he also talks about, um, the patients with chronic ankle instability, they have, they, they become unstable and such that the talus shifts down and in. Mm. So if you actually, if you just observe these patients and just like have them like sit on the exam table with their ankle hanging off, what you'll find, um, is that a lot of these patients just, um, their natural position of comfort is for their ankle to just kind of hang down and in. Okay. Um, it's just, this is, I don't know if this is described in the literature beyond this paper, but it's just, it's definitely an observation I've seen. So the patients like plantar flexion and inversion basically. Yeah. 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 Plantar flexion inversion. Yeah. So yeah, they, they, but they, they, without knowing it, like they instinctively are just their ankles kind of hanging out in that position of it. And if you look at a patient who had, you know, no injury on the opposite side and you look at that ankle, a lot of times you'll kind of find them in more of a neutral position when they're just kind of hanging out. So that's something I look at. Um, but, um, but that's a key, a key point building to, to your case of this perineal tendon patient who also happens to have some instability is that this position of the tail is being shifted down and in. So plantar flex and inverted, um, makes us less efficient particularly in supination. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, one of the key findings you see in these people is that they, they, they tend to, um, kind of have the supination bias when they land. Mm-hmm. So if you watch them run on a treadmill, um, they land on the outside of the foot. And so that inefficiency with supination then will then increase the load on the um, medial or the inside part of the ankle, 
um, because they just have more difficulty controlling it. So it's that excessive wobble that I described, which is why like you'll have those patients complain of like medial sided pain following a lateral ankle injury. And um, the the effect you described, it's like, yeah, the, um, that can lead to downstream events of like um, lesions of the medial tailor dome, posterior tibialis tendon, um, things like that. So um, mm-hmm. that was one of the key findings that um, Kevin Kirby described in his study, uh, which becomes super, super relevant in the running population. Yeah. I sent uh, one fellow to you a couple of years back who I couldn't figure out why he kept getting like like very stiff in his talcrural joint and he was getting like pretty severe pain in his talcrural joint um and uh had a yeah history of several like mild ankle sprains but um yeah that ended up being uh a driving factor we thought was um just that lateral ankle instability um causing the talcrural joint to yeah have to deal with too much motion whether that was yeah in a rotational kind of a, a way which makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. for this for this guy and um yeah he he had also um switch to uh some pretty minimal footwear so that was what i was originally blaming is just um you know having running in zero drop stuff and going into more ankle uh dorsiflexion and i thought that mm-hmm. was maybe it but yeah really really interesting so complex yeah. like the foot and ankle super and... complex um mm. and before we get into that i want to ask you two follow-up questions on, on your assessment so mm-hmm. when you do the ankle to wall test Mm-hmm. Um, do you have them standing or are they, are they kneeling? Cause I've seen it described both ways and, um, people argue for one versus another. Yeah, I do standing, uh, and it's the front leg just because I don't know, maybe you could control it better if they were in kneeling. Um, but I also like to have people in weight bearing so that it's like, I feel like more standardized in that way. Um, and it's something that they're going to be more likely to do at home. I feel like, um, so and plus I might give them that as an exercise. So we might do an um, active ankle, you know, 20 reps, just kind of trying to loosen your ankle up. So yeah, I do it in, in, in standing. Yeah. What's your preference? Yeah. Um, I just do it standing. That's just, um, I don't know. Just, I don't know if it truly makes a difference, I guess, as long as you're consistent. Right. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious to hear people's thoughts Mm because people seem to have strong opinions one way or another. So But um, I guess my second question, um, you brought up a really good point, how when you're stabilizing the talus to make sure that they they don't essentially pronate their foot when they're doing this test. Now, yeah. do you let them, do you do you just let them do the test the way they would do it first and give them no cues or are you like stabilizing the talus from the get-go? Like, does that give you information? Because I guess um, my thought would be if like they just naturally like lost pronation or couldn't control that, maybe that's a factor as to yeah. why their ankle might be. Yeah. I always, yeah. I always like to watch, um, just like what people, what people do for the first few reps. Um, and then what I try to do if, if the motion is like what I would, what we're looking for, you know, so in this case, if they're, um, they're maintaining that arch and they're not like kind of cheating in and, um, getting a couple extra millimeters by, uh, dropping the medial aspect of the, the foot, then I'll say, um, you know, something like you see how you're doing a really good job of keeping your, your foot in a neutral posture or something like that. Um, just to bring awareness to it so that if we do have them do that as an exercise or something, they're not like doing it well in front of me and then getting home and, um, just like 
getting farther motion, but kind of like not getting where we want the motion. So yeah, better, yeah. better quality of movement. Yeah. Um, so why it's, uh, um, I guess for people listening, why, why is that loss of pronation like important? Cause I feel like over pronation kind of gets, is a little bit of a, a, like a, what's the word I want to use wastebasket term. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely villainized. 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 That's what I want to say. Yeah. yeah. I think we can, yeah. we can blame, uh, I think shoe companies for that the whole the stability features stuff that we know yeah. now doesn't really um probably matter very much at all or do what they intended them to do in terms of stability um features and shoes um but uh yeah it, it matters um you know again i always try to say it in a way that's not going to make someone fearful um but it just matters because if we're trying to get motion at um the talcrural joint um, we don't want to be um, getting to the same barrier of the talcrural joint and then blocking there and then just rotating through the midfoot um, essentially mm-hmm. um, or I guess dropping if we're talking about like the different plane of the talus maybe rotating kind of dropping inwards you could be um, hitting that um, uh, sagittal barrier and then you're doing something else in the joint that um is maybe less uh i don't know less optimal in terms of uh strict sagittal plane range of motion Um, yeah but i guess i don't know the answer because now that i think about it like if you watch a lot of runners run um the towel cruel joint isn't probably a strict sagittal hinge joint you know like the right knee is in particular you know right um which is also a thing with that we screw up with a running gate, um, or even queuing people for lifting, you know, like, um, I've had people come in and say like, Oh, like I got to make sure that my toes are pointing straight ahead when I do my squats or, uh, with my running, like I know I have my toes stick out to the side. And in reality, it's like, well, that might just be the way that your ankle moves. You know, there could be a lot of reasons for that. So, um, I do think this is kind of a roundabout thought process here, but, um, we got to be careful with the way that we say things, um, because we don't know all the all the answers, but with that um, particular test, we're trying to see how far the ankle can bend in the sagittal plane. So we're just trying to limit it to that um, mm-hmm. that plane of motion. Totally, yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. That's that's. I mean, yeah. The, the key, yeah. The, I guess the key takeaway point is like the ankle behaves in multiple planes of movement all at one time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also when we're we're starting people on this rehab journey, a lot of the exercises are going to be pretty simple, but very focused on, um, you know, at first like isometric control of kind of just keeping things stable and then gradually adding in, um, little bits of more movement and then more degrees of freedom. So, um, I think it's just an important thing to like, um, you know, say that, you know, temporarily we're going to like really focus on high quality movements and kind of achieving a certain goal with that movement, because we want to kind of reprogram the way that that person, um, that person's nervous system is kind of automatically uh, stabilizing and controlling the way that they're, they're moving. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, it's kind of a ground up kind of rebooting of the system way Mm -hmm. in that point. Yeah. And like the way I've heard it described, you know, the um, sagittal plane movements is like, you know, rely on the um, mobility um, basically to like attenuate force and then like store and release energy. Um, So like Mm -hmm. you don't need perfect range of motion. Right. Um, I think we talked about this with Joe on our episode where like he went through all those tests and like, you just had tight ankles. Um, but for him, it was, um, 
actually to his benefit because then now he was able to better store Lee's energy as long as he he was saying he didn't um, kind of shift too far off um, into you know ranges of stiffness that he would actually perform quite well um, as long as he didn't shift too far from his normal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And um, yeah, we don't need a huge ankle excursion for, uh, for the task of running. Yeah. And yeah, something that I also, we were talking about like kind of midfoot motion um, and uh, something that, I do kind of worry about as, you know, other manual therapy practitioners, like it's kind of like a popular thing right now from antidotally what I see to like, you know, quote unquote, make sure the midfoot is moving or um, people come and say like, oh, like I heard my, you know, my ankle was like locked up. And um, so Mm -hmm. I do worry, and maybe this is a worry that I shouldn't have, um, that sometimes like we're too aggressive with um, some of the ankle mobilizations that we're doing to try mm-hmm. to improve people's mobility. Cause um, you know, like we were just describing a, the Teller tilt stress test um, and like the amount of force that we're using with that to like stress the ligament versus the amount of force that we're using for like a, a grade three or grade four joint mobilization is like the same. So like some of these folks that are coming in, wow. you know, every week, or, you know, years of like maintenance therapy to see like, you know, whoever, uh, whatever manual therapy type person they see. Um, yeah. So I don't know the answers to that, but, um, mm-hmm. I do wonder if, uh, if we've got some hypermobile, um, midfoots out there. That's an interesting point. Yeah, totally. That's not, some patients who are just, um, naturally more lax and you're making them more lax who, who, who knows what the answer is. Um, yeah. But, so. um, yeah, no, that's interesting. But I, yeah, one of the one of the things um wanted to highlight um with, with kind of in keeping with this like range of motion discussion um is that like the, the main goal of getting range of motion is to essentially like kind of reduce that force um, impulse or buffer the force over a longer period of time and then distribute that force over a wider surface area. Um and um I heard a really great analogy the other day on a webinar where this guy described this as like a, like, think of like, um, think of like the crumple zone on the front of a car. So, mm-hmm. like, you know, that um, just in front of the, like basically center of the hood. Um, and um, when you have that reduced ankle dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, basically it's, it's um, uh, you can, you take away that crumple zone. Okay. And so you're essentially distributing the, you're distributing the same force now to the wrong area. So it's like, if you take, if you, you take away that zone on your car and you, and you run into another car, um, you know, the force goes through the rest of that car. Um, so, hmm. um, yeah, that's why you tend to see these like proximal chain issues. And I thought that was kind of interesting, um, mm-hmm. description as to why, like these patients who come in, like they'll really complain of pain in like multiple spots. And like, um, it's like, you know, you can be scratching your head and, if you're, and if it's like one of those situations where, you know, your, your solution is to, um, mobilize all the different joints then, um, without assessing, you know, why are these things stuck? Then you're just kind of left chasing your tail on these cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which a lot of times, like, you know, the, the root cause of stiffness is instability or maybe not instability, but stiffness is being caused by something. Um, mm-hmm. so like, yeah, we should figure out like what that is and why why the, that structure or structures are, are kind of getting aggravated in the first place, which mm-hmm. is 
I think you said a, a while back, uh, you know, if you don't know what you're treating, uh, it's hard to treat or y- your mentor had a good saying, uh, for, uh, uh, no, know what you're treating before you treat it. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah, you go. That's, you know, that's <laughs> bar- buried in my skull. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess one last thing, um, regarding like the, um, the like mechanics of these injuries, um, cause man, this is super interesting stuff, um, is going back to that, the supination on landing. Cause one of the interesting studies on, um, uh, Jay Hurdle, um, he, he, he actually describes that these patients who have like, um, uh, unstable ankles, what they, what they end up doing is they, they tend to load their perineal tendons early. Um, it's almost like a, it's almost like a bracing mechanism, like, um, to prepare, prepare the body, um, to stabilize the ankle and then cope for what it does not have. Um, but mm-hmm. then they also have prolonged loading of the perineal tendons. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if that's relevant to your particular case. It kind of makes sense from, uh, um, especially somebody who was, uh, you were mentioning earlier, like kind of diverting to that supination strategy where they're landing in more of a supinated foot posture. And, um, these folks tend to like, uh, be more like their foot footsteps are landing in a straight line instead of like slightly offset. So that's another gate cue to look at is if somebody's crossing over or maybe running with a very narrow base of support. Um, but yeah, it kind of, I guess it makes sense that if you're in a supinated position, then you're going to have to use your peroneus longus to get your first ray down to the ground. Um, cause it's going to be plantar flexing the, the first ray to kind of get the big toe mm-hmm. side of the foot down to the ground. So that kind of makes sense from an early perspective is like, they're kind of like starting to like reach with the, the first ray to get down to the ground. And then, um, yeah, I always like, my understanding is like the peroneals were trying to tense up, like you were saying to, um, stabilize the lateral column of the foot, um, yeah. through mid stance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, that's a fun surgeon word, right? Lateral column. <laughs> Outside um, of the foot. <laughs> um, um, so do you, do you look at people's shoes then? Does that, does, um, does that give you some information? Um, I think so. I think so. And I'm sure you've seen those too, where people like coming in like the whole lateral aspect of the, uh, forefoot is like just blown out, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what did you do? Um, and I don't know there's, I remember guys on my college team that didn't have any injuries that that's just the way that they ran, you know? Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily know if I want to like, again, can't say like what causes what, but yeah, I, I will look at that. Um, I don't know how telling that is but certainly it's, it's something there, but more mm-hmm. so like, you know, when you're watching somebody try to do any sort of balancing task, if they, you know, if they're just, their only strategy is to go into supination, um, mm-hmm. you know, then, uh, that's something that we're going to start them with some of the basic kind of foot drills, you know, uh, uh, short foot toe yoga, that sort of stuff. Got it. Yeah. I've been really liking the, uh, toe pro did, uh, did you ever get one of those? the toe pro foot it's it's on my wish list oh okay yeah, yeah there's too many I, foot things out there i know <laughs> um it's uh i just like it because you're with that foam you can really get somebody to um just use their peroneus longus in like a good way that i've never really felt um yeah like like i could get somebody to like really like work that yeah um intentionally yeah because that's a hard one yeah and i think under trained and and in, in mm. a lot of rehab settings. Um, 
similar to like the MOBA board on the yeah. on the the um, odd axis. You can kind of like um, really bias that a little bit. Yeah, but it's super relevant though if you think about the anatomy of the peritoneus longus. So like peritoneus brevis and longus will run together, and then um, they'll, they'll 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 split um, just below the tip of the malleolus uh, on the outside of the ankle um, at a region called the peritoneal tubercle. And so the brevis attached to the base of the fifth mat, uh, but then the longest has an interesting anatomy that I, I never really like um, paid much attention to until the past year or two. But um, as you're saying, like, so it dives on the outside of the foot underneath the midfoot and then courses and then attaches at the base of the first metatarsal. So um, it, it, it all, it plays a, a key role in, um, in uh, plantar flexing the toe. So keeping the toe, big toe on the ground. Um, mm-hmm. which I, I know we've talked about a bunch of times um, it's about stabilizing like the first ray and the big toe. Um, um, Cause that's 80% of your balance or something is what Jay says uh, goes to the big toe when you go from mid stance to push off. So um, mm-hmm. and I just never really paid attention until like a year or two ago. So yeah, it's cool. It's kind of crazy that, that, that anchors like your whole, like that. Um, if you think about the triangle of the forefoot of your first MTP, the, um, tip of the big toe and then the uh, fifth metatarsal head like the um, yeah pronius longus is what's really keeping the um, first mtp kind of anchored to the ground and then i think i guess i would say like flexor hallux is longus is the keeping the the big toe anchored uh, to the ground which is why you know we teach people short foot and stuff like that so totally a lot of those fundamental things are good really good starting points and why like uh I uh, always challenge um, PTs if I ever see them doing marble marble pickups or stuff like that. It's kind of a pet peeve of mine of like, what are we what are we trying to do here? What are we accomplishing mm-hmm. with marble marble pickups? Yeah, it's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I guess um, yeah, these can be tricky, but imaging can help. And then yeah, like also I think from a PT perspective, like like knowing you're on the right path and just like kind of to encourage the patient to keep, you know, working on the things that you're, you're finding for them to work on. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it just takes more time to build up to, um, the higher level or bigger volume or uphill running speed running. Um, yeah, these are just tricky, um, uh, kind of long, long recoveries from what I found. Um, but, uh, definitely, yeah, referring to somebody that can do some, some imaging as we were describing, just to make sure that we're not, um, trying to rehab something that's going to need some farther intervention. Um, so you're not Mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, kind of spinning your wheels and scratching your head as to, you know, why this isn't better, you know, three months down the road. Um, totally, totally. And there's like, you know, um, I guess the last couple of minutes, um, on the rehab, you know, there are, yes, there are patients who totally will benefit from, um, uh, the the if they truly are structurally unstable and they have certain types of tears um, that they benefit from like uh, and seeing a good foot and ankle surgeon um, we can go in arthroscopically uh, address any cartilage or, or um, scar tissue issues that may develop um, in the joint and then more importantly stabilize the ligaments with something called a modified Brostrom procedure where they essentially just restore the stability of the ligaments. And if you look statistically at these patients in the studies, um, about 90% of them return to high level sports, even at a professional level um, and, and, and back to back to the level they were before, if not 
better. And this includes running, jumping, and cutting sports. But um, for the reha- for the patient who is uh, going to use their rehab strategy, uh, one of the things I found is like early management is super, super important in these patients, even if you think it's a simple ankle sprain, because if you leave these unchecked, um, the, at later stages of the injury, there's, there's just going to be more tissue edema, more scar tissue, these other challenging factors, um, which then attenuate your um, uh, effectiveness at mechanical loading. So basically, like if it's been around long enough, it's going to take longer to resolve in a lot of these cases. Yeah, it's a long road, but um, yeah. yeah, most people do. Most people do great. Yeah. Keep on keeping on. Cool. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, this is, this is great, man. This is a good discussion on like, um, some of the intricacies that go into like, um, uh, somebody comes in with this kind of lingering, uh, lingering ankle pain gives you a, a kind of lens into how we're thinking about these injuries. And, um, from a breakdown of the pathomechanics of this, as well as the, um, rehab and how it affects our rehab strategy. Yeah. And thanks for, um, your help with, the uh, the, uh, few cases that I've sent over of my uh, persistent peroneal tendinopathy in the recent months and years. And uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's um, got to, um, got to start with the, uh, the root, the root cause and um, not just treat it as a tendon injury. So um, yeah, if, if you guys are seeing people with a peroneal tendon injury, like um, make sure you're like diving into, you know, all of the biomechanical factors at the foot, ankle, hip and pelvis that you, um, that you could uh, possibly take a look at just to cover all your bases. All right. right. Well, thank you. Thank you. 